Amen. You may be seated. Again, if you have your Bible with you today, please turn with me to Psalm, Psalms 122 and 123, this third and fourth of the Songs of Ascent, or they are printed on page 10 in your bulletin. Psalm 122, a song of ascents. This is a psalm of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that's bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as it was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for your blessing by the Spirit, Lord, as we hear now in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as we saw last week, midway through book five of Israel's Psalms, we run across what Eugene Peterson calls an old dog-eared songbook. This well-thumbed, stained, tattered little collection of 15 psalms that all have the same title. They are songs for going up, songs for ascent. Well, what's the backstory on that? You guys might remember that three times a year, once right before harvest began, once at the end of harvest, and then once when the harvest had been gathered into all the barns and vats for the winter, these three times a year, the Israelites were to go up. Go up from their everyday lives, and they were to go to God's house. You might remember then King David's time. So he, uh, Psalm 122 was written by David, and in King David's time, you remember the, the, what's called the ark, uh, the, the chest, that box with the angel, kind of the, the, the metal angels with their wings stretched out over top of it. It was called the Ark of the Covenant, and, and that represented God's presence, right? And so David, King David, early in his reign, he took that box and he put it in the royal city of Jerusalem. And so this is where God's presence is. This is what we might call God's house now. And the Israelites were to go up from where they lived, and they were to go to God's house, And having gone up to God's house, they could kind of now look out on their lives and look out at the world and see things from above. Maybe that's one way of thinking about it. And they were to celebrate with great joy before the Lord. And then in a much later and darker time, God's people were to go up, but this time from their exile, right, in Babylon. They were to go home, go back to God's city as it was being rebuilt. And so these are songs for the road. They would sing these as they went up. Well, what on earth has that got to do with us in 2023? Obviously, these pilgrimages uh, on these physical roads, those ended when the Messiah came. But this songbook remains with us as a God-given 
journey for the soul, we could say. It's a, working through these psalms is like a journey of the heart. And our hearts are able, as we work through these psalms, to kind of go up from everyday life. I mean, you guys, look, you, you, most of you are Long Islanders, right? You, you, you're really into your daily life, and that's not a bad thing per se, but our hearts need sometimes to go up from all that we're absorbed in in daily life. Sometimes our hearts really need to go up from world events, maybe not quite as catastrophic for us as the exile was for Israel, but world events that really make us wonder, is God in fact on the throne? Does he care? The world can be a very dark place, very awful things happening. And our hearts need to go up. They need to go up toward God. They need to see from above. And these, psalms, these songs help with that. And last week we began our journey, the first two uh, psalms. We began our journey where pilgrims actually live, uh, you know, in a world that is riddled with lies, a world that is riddled with conflict and war. And we lifted up our eyes through those first two psalms. And it's interesting, the pilgrims do not first lift up their eyes to the city of Jerusalem. I mean, it is, after all, just an earthly city. Their eyes are lifted up to the maker of heaven and earth, you may recall. This one from whom alone our help can truly come. We say it every week. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, right? That's our help. And so they look up to, to the Lord, the almighty and faithful keeper of Israel. And today we're going to take a little further journey uh, on this pilgrimage. We're going to go into the next two psalms. And as we begin, I'd just like you to notice from our reading the dramatically different moods in these two psalms. So Psalm 22 is kind of summarized in the words, I was glad. It's a very cheerful psalm. Psalm 123, the language is, we've had more than enough, right? Very different moods. One of them is quite excited and glad. The other one is fed up, <laughs> really fed up. We've had more than enough. Have you guys ever been really excited about something and you look around and everyone around you is either not listening as you're excited about this thing, or they're laughing at you, mocking you. That is normal experience for God's pilgrims in the world. You and I, as God's pilgrims in this world, we are excited about something. We're glad about something that God has said he is doing. And we're kind of revved up about it. But very often we find ourselves surrounded by a world that just could not, could not give a toss about this or thinks that we are actually laughable losers because we're excited about this. And I just want to talk today very briefly about, in, in the first Psalm 122, the promise of God's city, and then in Psalm 123, the presence of God's enemies. The promise of God's city, which we're excited about, and the presence of God's enemies. So let's begin in the first Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let's go up to, the, to God's house. So the Bible revolves, you pick up your Bible, I know many of you find this quite intimidating, reading through it, right? It's a lot going on in the Bible, but the Bible really revolves around one central fact, and that central fact is that God is doing something in the world, right? You open up the Bible, God is, yes, God is, God is not the world, and God is not remote from the world, right? There's no atheism in the Bible, God is. But God is not the world, right? There's no pantheism. Things are not God. God is God. He's separate from his creation, but he's not remote from his creation. He's not, there's no deism is the technical term in the Bible either. You know, this clockmaker God who creates a clock, winds it up, and walks away. That's not how it is. God is doing something in the world. The Bible's just full of that. And as you read on in the Bible, you realize that what God is doing, basically, 
God is restoring life where our sin has brought death. That's kind of the Bible in a nutshell. God is restoring life where our rebellion against him has brought death. He is reconnecting us to himself. He is restoring what we call fellowship, friendship. The Bible uses the word covenant. He's restoring that fellowship between dead sinners who have decided they don't want to live with the God of life. But he's restoring fellowship between these dead sinners and himself, who is the Lord and the giver of life. That is very, very good news that God does that. He's still doing that even now, this afternoon. It's good news, and that is why when the Bible talks about what God is doing in the world, the mood is gladness. The Bible is a very cheerful book. It certainly explores the dark side of life, but it's cheerful because God and what he's doing. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, if you don't know what that means, it just means the part of the Bible before Jesus came, right? So before Jesus came into the world, God's restoring work, his life-giving work, as you know, was concentrated in a place called Israel. So God chose a very particular people. He chose this guy named Abraham, and he chose him and his family. That family later became a whole nation, and he selected these people, and he gave to them his life-giving presence. So if you're near God, close to God, things live. Far away from God, things die. And God brings himself, as it were, to these people, and he gives them his life-giving presence. He gave, him, gave them his presence first in a tent. So there was this box where God's glory cloud kind of sat on the box, and that was represented where God is, you know, his life-giving presence. And it was inside of a tent for a while, and then eventually that tent was moved into a land when God gave them the land of Canaan. When David comes along, the ark moves from this land in general into a city called Jerusalem, and then eventually under David's son Solomon, that box will be moved into a temple in that city, which King Solomon will build, but God is with his people. And so what you understand as you hear Psalm 122, Jerusalem matters because God's work in the world matters. God is bringing life. He has put his life-giving presence in this city. That's why the city matters, because the life-giving God is there. From the time of David until the time of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, this city, Jerusalem, is where God has set his earthly throne. This is where God said, I am specifically here. Now, God is everywhere. God is not bound by any space constraints. But God has said, I'm going to like put my active presence in the world in this city. So this city is where my throne is. This city is the physical center, the physical center of my restoring work. It is the earthly symbol of the kind of grace and love that I give to sinners who don't deserve it at all. And this city is not just a symbol of the grace that I give, it's a symbol of the life that happens when I give grace. I give grace to dead people and they live and there's life that comes forth and Jerusalem's a picture of that. And so what makes the pilgrim hearts glad when they're all like, hey, let's go up to God's house in Jerusalem, what makes their hearts glad as they look toward this city is the God who lives there, the God who rules there, and the life that fills that city because God lives there and rules there. Notice in the psalm what this, what this psalmist, this pilgrim, sees and he loves and he prays for as he looks up toward Jerusalem. And I think you could probably summarize it in verse 3, Jerusalem, he says. What does he see and love and pray for? Well, what he sees and loves and pray for, prays for as he looks at this city is unity. 
He says, Jerusalem, built as a city, is bound firmly together. Now, some of you guys have actually been and seen this city in its modern form. I have not. But in its time, it was actually quite an architectural marvel because, as John Golden Gate points out in his commentary, Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, was almost surrounded by canyons. If you ever try to build a city that is surrounded by canyons, you've got to make sure it's built well or it's going to fall off into the canyons. Okay, This is not a good thing. So this was kind of an architectural model of a well-built, compacted city perched up on these sort of cliffs. And it was a well-built, unified, architecturally unified city. But for the psalmist, that is a picture of something that is even more marvelous. Jerusalem is a city bound firmly together to which the 12 tribes all go up. That architectural joined, joinedness of the city is a picture that there in that city God has joined together. He has united the 12 tribes of Israel. They all go up, verse 4, as was decreed to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, I want to ask you guys, you remember the book of Genesis, Jacob his name was later changed to Israel, but Jacob's 12 sons, how well did they get along? It was a mess. Like, this is about as dysfunctional a family as you can get. I don't want to be at their dinner tables ever. These guys were lunatics, some of them. They did not get along. They were, they were actually murderers, some of them, <laughs> of their own family. And, you know, you read on in the story after they become a nation, and you know, there's these 12 tribes that come from these 12 guys, and you think about the book of Judges. When's the last time you guys read the book of Judges? Read the book of Judges sometime and tell me, how did the 12 tribes get along in the book of Judges after Moses died and Joshua died? It was a mess. They were openly hostile toward each other. But suddenly, they are all streaming up to God's house. How has God united these tribes? And I think about this quite a lot. I'm sure you probably do too. I mean, everyone talks and talks today about how polarized, that's the buzzword now, everything's so polarized. Can I ask you guys a question? You should know this as Christians. What is it that binds people's hearts together? What is it? Oh, love, we all need love. Do we need love? How do you get people to love each other? There's the problem. What actually binds people's hearts together? What binds their lives together? I think about this even in a small church like this, you know? What is the glue that makes husbands and wives love each other, makes parents and children love each other, makes brothers and sisters love each other, let alone friends love each other, neighbors love each other, a bro whole Christian community love, truly love one another? What's the glue? What binds us together? What not only can remove, let's hope, at least hostility, but remove far far more. Remove pettiness, you know, that just the stupid, you know, pinched way of looking at the world that makes us so kind of cranky with each other. Bitterness, selfishness. I mean, in the end, I love you as much as it helps me. What drives that out? What drives out independence? I just want to do my own thing, have my own privacy, you know. If I want you, I'll let you know. What drives that out? But it doesn't just drive that stuff out. What fuels affection where from the inmost heart you really care about one another and then you do something with it, right? You actually serve and help bear each other's burdens and you do it faithfully. You're not like a 10-minute friend or a, even a 10-year friend. You're all in. What does that? Well, in this psalm, what the psalmist sees at the end of verse 4, what binds the tribes together is shared worship. They share worship. Together, they go up to acknowledge at the end of verse 4 that their blessings are from God. 
getting together with all the other tribes as they bring the fruit of their fields up to Jerusalem, and you're all looking at each other. You're like, guess what? The reason we had a harvest this year, all of us, from Dan to Judah, is because God gave the increase. And you know what? At the final feast of the year, God gave us the power to build the barns to store this stuff. God gave us the power to build the vats to store this stuff. This is all from the Lord, and we give thanks together to the name of the Lord our God. That binds people together. But it isn't just the gratitude that binds them together, the shared gratitude. It's also in verse 5. It's interesting. There are these thrones for judgment in Jerusalem. These represent the law of God and the judgment of God. And so these tribes recognize it isn't just that we're all blessed by the Lord. That's something that's something. We are all accountable to the Lord. He's the king. He has a throne. He judges. He's the lawgiver and judge. And we're all under that law. We're all under that judgment. And notice an important little detail in verse 5 connected to that. These are the thrones of the house of David. So God, the high king, he rules his people, all 12 tribes, he rules them through the house of David. Now, when you hear the term house of David in the Bible, he's not talking about David's domicile, like where he ate and slept and whatever. It's his royal house. It's his house in the Game of Thrones sense, if I can reference that despicable show. It is a, a, a dynastic house, we could say, right? It, David has an everlasting dynasty that God covenanted to give him that on his throne, one of his seed will always sit and rule forever and ever. And of course, that, the house of David, this just has huge resonances in Israel's story, doesn't it? Because we've, been, we've known for, for, for centuries now that God is one day going to rule, not just Israel. God is going to rule the whole world through a royal son of Abraham. We finally learn that that is also a royal son of King David. And it is to that son of Abraham, that son of David, that the, to him the peoples will be obedient, we're told. He will be the king in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. Is this such a big deal? My word, this is God's answer to the deepest plight of humankind. This centripetal force, this gravitational field of shared thankfulness and shared submission to God as he rules through David's house. Beloved, that gravitational pull of unifying worship is alone what reverses the basic dynamic of sin. Yes? Because what does sin do? Going all the way back to Eden, sin breaks fellowship. Right? Sin has the audacity to try to stiff-arm the Almighty God. How'd that work out in Cain's relationship with his brother to come down to the horizontal? Sin violates covenant. Sin hates. Sin divides. Sin fractures. Look, you live with this, right? Sin alienates. It disintegrates people. And unless God intervenes by his grace, sin is just going to keep on doing that. It is going to more and more divide sinners from their God, divide sinners from each other. But God has changed that in Jerusalem. He's changed that in Jerusalem. So no wonder the psalmist says it's good. It's, I just love going up to God's house. We get to experience something that's like nowhere else. And he prays. No wonder he prays for Jerusalem. The, 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 the word Jerusalem is from two Hebrew words, ir shalom, city and peace. 
Jerusalem is the city of peace, Ir Shalom. And he prays that in this city of peace, God's shalom will always fill it. And you guys know shalom is not just, you know, kind of things being calm. Shalom is things being good, being blessed. Oh, may God's shalom be in Jerusalem. May God's shalom fill those who love Jerusalem. And he prays and he does more because in verse 9, he is determined because of what this city represents. He says, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I'm going to seek Jerusalem's good. I'm going to invest. I'm going to put some skin in the game. I'm not just going to talk about how great Jerusalem is. I'm going to, like, give, invest. So I want to ask you guys, what does it mean to pray for and to seek the peace of Jerusalem today? Well, you recall that for the psalmist, Jerusalem matters because God is in the midst of her. Otherwise, Jerusalem is just a city. No different from Nineveh or Babylon. And centuries on from David's time, you know that there was a generation of Jerusalem dwellers in this earthly city who decided they did not want God in their midst. Because God came in the flesh, in their midst, and they said, we do not want this man to rule over us. We do not want God in our midst. We surely do not want him to gather Gentiles into our midst. And so they killed the Son of God, and they persecuted his church. Very sad stuff, but it was all part of God's plan, as you know, because God was going to use even the rebellion of that generation in earthly Jerusalem to lay the cornerstone of another city, a new Jerusalem, built of living stones, which would now be Jew and Gentile, Abraham's family and all the families of the earth. And the cornerstone, as you know, was Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way, and he says this to you, and he says this to his readers in, in the first century. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I mean, the glorious thing in New Jerusalem is it isn't just people that get, come and gather there and have a great time, it's angels too. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, there's the throne, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's New Jerusalem. And so the great work, brothers and sisters, for which we are praying in our time is that this city that God is building through his son Jesus, and we are told that the gates of hell will be unable to withstand this building as it is built of living stones who believe in Christ, believe in the Messiah, Jesus. We are praying that that city will fill the world, that it will fill Long Island and New York City and the United States and North America and South America and all the continents of the world, that every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation will be gathered into this city and bring all their glory into it and worship the Lord God together and serve him. That is what we pray for. And we are commanded, even as the psalmist says, I'm going to seek the good of this city. You and I are commanded. It is actually a command to seek the good of heavenly Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake assembling. You need to be in worship together. 
Don't forsake it. Don't be careless with that. Gather and give thanks to the Lord God because it is no less true that everything in your 401k and everything in your paycheck is as much from the hand of the Lord God as the crops that Israel enjoyed in her time. We give thanks to the Lord our God together. We serve him and submit to his law together because he is the king. And we alone on the earth show the world what it looks like to serve this king, yes? We're the obedient ones. We're his children serving him to show the world how good it is to serve the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says, let brotherly love continue, man. Put some skin in the game. Share your gifts with each other. Meet each other's needs. Bear each other's burdens. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. And this city is the great goal of history. It is a great goal of our lives. And as our hearts just burn with zeal, Lord God, let your city come. Let your kingdom come. Rule. Build your city. We're just so on fire, and we should be. This next little psalm, it's going to feel like a very cold shower. The presence of God's enemies now, because where the, the pilgrim in Psalm 123 lives, praying no, no less than David in Psalm 122, he is praying for the peace of God's city, he is seeking the good of God's city, as Brother Ben said, hungering and thirsting for God's righteous rule on the earth. Where he's living, he's surrounded by contempt. You can imagine this is certainly true. I mean, think about the pagan powers in Israel's time, some of them very near, like the Philistines and the Moabites, let's say, some of them very far away, like Assyria and Babylon. These pagan powers, whether they were close or far away, they viewed Israel as an absolute minnow in the sea of international relations. These pagan nations had no respect for Israel's God. They couldn't care less what these uppity Hebrews say their God has planned for their capital city, they could not care less. To the extent that they even noticed Israel at all, it was with disdain. Frankly, we hate you and your God unless you have something economically to offer us, you know, through some treaty or whatever. To the extent that they had heard anything about Israel's God, it would have been with a sneer. I mean, the dominant note in the pagan view of Israel would have been, you guys cannot be serious. You actually think your God is Lord of heaven and earth? Well, as a nation, you know, Israel first heard this from Pharaoh. You know, Moses shows up, thus says the Lord, let my people go. What's Pharaoh's reaction? Who's the Lord? That I shall obey him? You can't be serious. You imagine the Assyrians or the Babylonians, you know, Sennacherib in Assyria or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, hearing the words of Israel's Psalm 86, among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. I think Nebuchadnezzar's response would have been what he said to the three young men before he threw them into the fiery furnace. Who's the God who will deliver you out of my hand? I could pulverize you with half my army. And sadly, you know, as David experienced in his lifetime with King Saul, later pilgrims certainly experienced it too, it wasn't just pagans, it was often Israelites even who, thought, who held their believing countrymen in utter contempt, refused to honor the God of their fathers. Psalmist says we've had more than enough of contempt. Can I ask you guys, what do you see where you live? What do you think would happen if a YouTube video of this worship service went viral this afternoon? What do you think would be in the comments now see, those of you over 30 are trying to answer the question. Those of you under 30 already know the answer to the question. It wouldn't go viral, would it? 
because nobody gives a toss. Our world, 2023, from the multinational players down to the more local influencers, they don't regard you or me. They don't regard the God we worship. They don't regard our God's work in the world as worthy of any notice. It wouldn't even, you'd probably get like four clicks on YouTube. And if you and I are noticed in 2023, if somehow powerful people might happen to hear that we really think Jesus is Lord, like Lord, Lord, expect derision. Hard to say what form it will take. It might take the form of people treating your faith as a despicable, exploitative lie that has just served the interests of colonialism. That's one form of contempt. Or many of them might just think it's kind of a quaintly cute delusion. Like, I didn't think people like you still existed. You know, you still believe in like, you know, supernatural stuff. Or quite likely in our very, very tolerant age, they would look at your faith and your God and your Jesus and your whole Christianity thing as just one more shiny object on the shelves of self-improvement. If it does, does something for you, man, good for you. Thumbs up. I'm going to go do yoga. But whatever form, you can't be serious. How does a psalmist react? How do you react? Look around at North American Christians today. How are they reacting as we are marginalized and we are mocked? Well, you hear lots of angry Jeremiads, don't you? I don't mean thoughtful, moral assessment of things in our time. I mean just the kind of yelling prophetically that nobody but your little circle that listens to you is listening to. Just kind of bellowing because it makes you feel better about how bad things are. Certainly a lot of power grabs. You know, make America great. Take it back. As if what is going on in Washington, D.C. is somehow the indicator of whether the kingdom of Jesus is coming or not. At the other end of the spectrum, you certainly see lots of hunkering down. This is a traditionalist approach. You know, we go into our little church ghetto and talk Westminster Confession of Faith, hold on to our old familiar things, and just are so thankful we at least have a little shred of a boat left as everything else is sinking. And sadly, a lot of Christians today, they're just, they're tired of contempt. You know what their response is? They're just blending in. They are gradually scrubbing out everything about Jesus that could scandalize anybody. Anything that could offend until they think and they speak and they feel and they act in ways that are absolutely savorlessly normal. Well, what do Psalm 123 believers do? You're not going to like this answer. I don't. They pray. Our eyes look to the hand of the Lord. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Now, I'll tell you why you guys don't like that answer. Same reason I don't like that answer. Ah, oh, that's it. Before you kind of check out with that, can I ask you, who is the only one who can put Jesus' enemies under Jesus' feet? Don't overthink it. It's like Jesus. If Jesus has not put his enemies under his feet, they're not going to be put under his feet. So prayer is not just a thing. Prayer is exactly the thing, brothers and sisters. We are asking our Lord to pour mercy, merciful grace upon merciful grace. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, great Lord. Have mercy on your people in the world. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And if you and I disparage this prayer, we're like, that's it? Then how, at a heart level, are we so different from the proud? They don't think God will work. 
Do you? Do I? If we won't pray, because we're not, it's like, that's it. Maybe our hearts have already bought a whole lot of what makes the proud contemptuous. But that said, notice that this is prayer that is dressed for action too. We pray as servants, as maid servants. We're ready to do things. And as we pray, the Lord will act as only he can, but he will also, brothers and sisters, give you and I things to do. But I'd like you to notice, and I'm almost done, I'd like you to notice it is prayer. It is really trusting God alone that as we go to work in the world, lets us have a confidence that the world cannot understand. They don't understand why Christians are confident. I don't understand why Christians are confident unless God is God. But because he is God, we have confidence that the world doesn't understand. And because we're prayerful and trusting in God, it also makes us alert to opportunities that the world can't see. The world says, like, this is the big stuff that matters. And Jesus says, actually, this is the big stuff that matters. And we kind of see those opportunities because we're in prayer. And prayer and trusting in God prepares us to use weapons that the world can't imagine. The world's like, you know what, you want to change things, you do it this way. And we say, well, actually, because I'm waiting on the Lord, I see this is actually how you overcome evil with good. Daniel, right? Daniel, the great influencer in Babylon, he prayed and prayed and prayed. He's the, he's the real influencer in, in that story, not Nebuchadnezzar. And the real influencers that Jesus is going to use in this world are people who are constantly eyes on Jesus eyes on Jesus. You know, this harks all the way back to Israel's liberation from Egypt, doesn't it? What enabled Israel as a bunch of slaves to stand tall before their overlords who abused them and held them in contempt? It was not that they had somehow managed to marshal enough power to overthrow the empire. It was that God had called them to be his royal sons, to go forth and serve him. And in every situation, as they just simply prayed and did what God had told them to do, their father king would do the rest, even parting the sea. But it took those slaves, those former slaves, a very long time to settle into the fact that God is our invincibility. That if God is for us, all is well. We can just settle down and get back to what he has told us to do and be at peace. And so it is today, brothers and sisters, for you and me. Pray for God's city because he must build it. And then go and see what he wants you to do on its walls. Amen? Make it so, O Lord. Build your house. Build your city. In Jesus' name, amen.